What is up, everybody? Welcome to podcast number five of What's What with Wyatt Wilkes. Today we have Gary Bogdan on the show. He is a very successful photographer uh, nationally and internationally. He has Sports Illustrated covers. He works for uh, different uh, large hotel chains that I will not mention for obvious reasons, as we know. And um, uh, it's going to be a great time having him on. I uh, hope you guys enjoy it. Thanks for the wait, and let's get started. Four, three, two. Gary, how you doing? Good, man. It's good to be on here with you. How have you been lately? Doing pretty well. Busy um, season, getting ready to start up, and uh, doing well. So for the people that don't know, um, uh, Gary is actually my next-door neighbor. Uh, he's my childhood best friend's uh, father, and he also happens to be one of the best photographers in the country. He won't tell you that, but it's, it's the truth. So I, I wanted to have him on the podcast because not it, it's one of the things that people you, you see in in every magazine and every commercial that's that, that's what he does and you really never get to learn how to do it. So I just you know I wanted to bring him on here and try to open up open up to people about you know like really what's going on uh, with photography and videography and all, all those things. So um, if you could just give us a little bit of you know background of where you're from and. Um, just early upbringing, just, you know, just give, give us an idea of who you are. Yeah, sure. So I grew up in uh, outside of Louisville, Kentucky, and I uh, kind of grew up in Kentucky and southern Indiana as well. Went to high school, uh, uh, started in uh, newspaper photography in high school in the yearbook like a lot of young kids do, and had some really great mentors in high school and then in college. I um, you know, working through the student publications, and then I went to Indiana University up in Bloomington. And growing up in Louisville in that area, you know, basketball is a thing up there, much more than football. And um, just my love of sports and photography all kind of came together. And my degree actually is, uh, I have a journalism degree from IU. And then from IU, I went, my career path was working as a staff photojournalist at big newspapers around the country, including um, Miami Herald and the Orlando Sentinel, and from there I went. Um, did did you, that? Did oh, you, sorry. Oh no worries. Um, did you, you know, work at, or did you want to be a journalist like to start off, or was that did did you just kind of fall into the photography thing? No, I knew I wanted to be a photojournalist from the very beginning. Um, so it's it's different. Uh, I was very fortunate at the time, the newspaper in Louisville, the Louisville Courier-Journal, was a family-owned newspaper, and it just happened to be one of the best, if not probably the best, photojournalist newspaper in the country. Of course, this is back in the film days, no digital, and this is also back in black and white. Uh, at, at that time, in the 70s, in the early 80s, there were no newspapers running color photos in, you know, in the daily newspaper, which seems kind of weird now, but that's how it was back then. Uh, what, what were like some of your main assignments, you know, on a day to day basis? Yeah, it would it would vary um, from day to day. You know, like uh, let's say a typical uh, this time of year on like a Friday, you might cover like a high school football game on Friday night. But when you came in to the newspaper that day, you'd probably you might have another assignment. Could be anything from uh, a portrait of a business owner to a breaking news situation to um, you know might be a restaurant review or it, it could be anything. Um, I t after years of you know kind of honing my skills, I moved towards sports more, and 
but the assignments that's that's what was great about it is you never really knew what you were going to have until the you know the day you walk in the office on the other hand you did know like during football season or basketball season that you were covering you know whatever games they were mm-hmm. whether they were in town or out of town uh, so was that transition to sports difficult for you how long did you uh, work at the paper um, no, it's pretty easy for me. I worked at several papers, so I worked uh, right out of college. Actually, I worked at the Miami Herald and uh, worked there for a while and then came to the Orlando Sentinel, and I worked there for 15 years. Where When I left, I was a senior photographer there at the Orlando Sentinel. And um, probably every few years, the business kind of would change, you know, from black and white to color, from film to digital, from just image you know still images to video so as long as you're on that kind of cutting edge of technology um it always it was always exciting so when you were moving into you know the sports what was one of the biggest adjustments like can you give us like an idea of what it you know let's say you're going to a football game an NFL football game just can you give us like a little play-by-play of exactly like what you're gonna how you're gonna be preparing you know what you're gonna be bringing <clears throat> And just like, kind of give us an idea of how much work it is. Because I, I know Marley used to go with you and, uh, you know, assist you with carrying all the gear and everything. I don't think people realize how much, how hard it is. I mean, it's, it's almost like a workout. Yeah, it's very physical. Um, we uh, a Typical, I'll kind of run you through a typical kind of assignment scenario. So um, you typically would show up at a um, NFL game, let's say, uh, about three hours before the game starts because you have to go in and uh, – you know, get your gear all there and beat the traffic and get all set up and set your uh, computers up to be able to send images back to whoever you're working for. And you have to, you have to go through security and everything? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the full security. They do have a media entrance, so it's not you're not walking through the regular, you know, with mm-hmm. thousands of people. So they have a specific media gate that all the media, working media goes through. And we have, uh, well, for like an NBA season, I'll have, typical, I would have like a, season media credentials so but for a college or a pro uh football game you would have credentials per game you know you would Mm -hmm. it's not just one media pass you'd get a game for the florida game or the fsu miami game or whatever it was gotcha uh so you're you're packing in like i mean how much gear are we talking about here oh we're talking uh you know three or four cameras half a dozen lenses uh computers laptop uh things to send the you know the images back to whoever you're working for it's it's such a contrast really from the old days of film to digital now like for instance like when i first started working at sports illustrated we would go to a you know i go to cover a game say it was an, an alabama game i'd fly up there on friday to birmingham and then i would you know go over to the game on saturday whatever time that would start three or four hours before the game we were shooting film then so you would shoot the game and take all the film, and then immediately after the game, race back to whatever the closest airport would be. In that case, it'd be Birmingham or sometimes Atlanta, and ship the film back to New York on the next flight out to LaGuardia or whatever airport we pick. On the other end in New York, for Sports Illustrated, there'd be a courier service that would pick up the film. They would take it to the lab, and the lab technicians would process the film first thing in the morning. And then for a Saturday game, like a college football game, by Sunday morning, the film was all processed, so when the editor comes in, they would look at all of the images, which were slides, you know, transparency mm-hmm. at the time, 
edit their take, and that's how it would get in the magazine. Now, well, okay, so now it's obviously just you know digital or wirelessly. They just send automatically, correct? You know, you take a picture, it just sends, right? Well, a little bit like that. So, for instance, I was at the uh, national championship game between Florida State and Auburn at the Rose Bowl back in '13. And at that game, it was a Monday night game because it was tele- televised. And Monday at the time uh, was when the magazine closed. And by close, that means that's the last uh, things that are going that week's magazine. So that was pressed right on deadline. So, for instance, that game, there were, I think, six photographers for Sports Illustrated, including myself. And we would shoot from, you know, I was in the end zone, one of the corners, and basically they would hardwire uh, cord into my camera and then every image I would shoot would kind of slingshot back to the editors in New York live oh, oh wow and then they would edit live from that oh that's incredible so are they I've always wondered this are they giving you instructions like you know because I figured they would be getting them almost immediately but are they giving you instructions like oh hey we see you took this one photo like you know from this angle could you could you take it again or like try to get something similar at you know at this other angle or this different lighting or a different setting on the camera like live or is it just not real no not really uh, they leave it up to the photographer you know to your skills and your instincts. And when you're covering a game, you really, whether it's football or basketball or baseball, and all the sports are different, it really helps to know the sport and to know the players. So you kind of have to do your homework before you go into a game. And that could be like, well, they're a really great defensive team and you know their best player is such and such, so you really kind of focus on them. But they don't really give you any instructions unless um, I'd say the only thing like that would be like if you know you're shooting for a cover obviously you're probably going to shoot more verticals and horizontals but typically there's no uh, they're not like talking to me on a headset or things saying shoot looser or tight or anything they leave that up to the photographer to then just create the best picture and the whole idea really is you get the best action the best emotion and the best moment and light all in one and when you get all that you got it when you're shooting so you have three covers right uh, six actually. Six, six covers. Oh man, okay. They had six covers. So do they do do? So you said like you know for the national championship game you had um, six six photographers there, right? So are you guys bringing your photos back to them and they're saying okay you get the cover or is that premeditated? No, they look at uh, nothing is pre-planned. Basically, they set a team of photographers uh, out there. I was one of them. And when you're covering a game, you never know what the cover is going to come from. And it could come from one of the six that are there covering it for Sports Illustrated, or it could come from any number of image, you know, image makers. There's photographers there for the Associated Press. There's photographers there for Getty Images. So we're essentially competing amongst ourselves, but also amongst all the other photographers that are there. So it's a very competitive business, sports photography and a photojournalist as well. But... That's what I kind of loved about it because I never played sports other than golf in high school. You know, I didn't play competitive sports, although golf is competitive. But it was that competitiveness of competing with yourself and with others that are around you trying to get the best shot and get the key moment, the key play. Sometimes you just might not be in the right place. It might be on the other end of the end zone or the other end of the basketball court and the guy's totally turned away from you and you don't have a shot, but you can't control that. So you just go in there, you know, ready to roll and, and shoot the best stuff you can. Uh, it's almost like a gamble you're taking by lining up on one end. or Yeah. Are, are you, is that, you know, are you looking at, like, past plays or are you just kind of, like, just saying, okay, well, they kind of score over here a lot or are you? 
you know, just saying, all right, like, you know, I'm going to, I'm just going to line up over here and, you know, just try to get the best shot I can get. Well, at a, it's a little different at a national championship game or at a Super Bowl because then it's kind of premeditated where the photographers for Sports Illustrator or whatever organization are going to be placed. So in that instance, I knew I was going to be in one certain end zone in one corner mm-hmm. and other photographers were in other end zones and different positions around the game. But during a regular season game, it's kind of up to you. Like I'm covering the game just by myself or maybe with another photographer and we just kind of, you know, float around to wherever you think you can get the best image because sometimes the light is a little different on one end than it is on the other, or you might be there shooting a game just on a particular player, like just on Brady or just on Jameis Winston or whatever, and, you know, you want him in the best light, so you might go on one side of the field and shoot more than you would on the other. But on a national championship game, it's pretty much locked in, and you're you're not moving a whole lot other than right in that one little spot. So do you get like a – like a contract or an assignment to shoot one guy? Like, how is that different than just shooting anybody? Is that is that really the difference, you just moving more? Or is it, are you using different cameras, different lenses? Like, is, there, is the mindset different? Are you going into it similarly or? Kind of a little bit of everything, actually. So the way it worked is I was a contract photographer for Sports Illustrated, so there weren't very many of us um, around the country. So it was a pretty special um you know, special thing to be able to do, but we would go to a game and some, there were two kinds of assignments, either just regular game coverage where, you know, there's no specific assignment to shoot any specific Mm -hmm. player, or sometimes you go into it and you know, pretty much there's one or two players that the photo assignment editor and each sport had a different photo editor. So say NFL had their own photo editor at SI and college basketball, different photo editor. So the editors really know the sport as well, and they know what the writers or the editors are going to be writing about, unless it's just a game coverage like a championship game or a regular season game. But if there's a writer or a story that's being written about a specific player, then we'll go into that game and just load up on that one particular player. Oh, okay, I gotcha. So when, when you see uh, – I actually saw this the other day, and I was, uh, I was wondering about it, and I wanted to ask you – when you see those those shots from, um, you know, from up above, like let's say, well, it's like different, you know, I guess for the NBA, but like for like a field, a football field, and you see it from the very like very top with you know all the fans in it, is that taken by a contract photographer? Or is that taken more from like you know like a blimp or something? Somebody, you know, the like how, how does that work? Basically, so, no idea. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. It's different in each. Uh, Depends on which sport, really. So if there's, um, well, there are no, uh, the FAA doesn't allow any sort of uh, or type of aircraft to fly over any live sporting venue. So it could be a. So you can't fly a drone. No. Okay. Yeah. No drones. No. uh, The only aircraft in the air, other than police or security or things like that, would be a blimp that's giving coverage of that particular, you know, Monday night football game or whatever. And uh, another answer to that question is I've done all the above. I've flown in a blimp above the Kentucky Derby. I've put remote cameras in the oh, in Tropicana Field in the rafters up there directly above home plate. Okay, now how do you do that? It's, cra- <laughs> it's kind of crazy, and if you have a fear of heights, it's not for the faint of heart. <laughs> yes. But uh, you basically climb up. You have to get permission, of course, and insurance and liability and all that, but you climb up in the rafters, up the catwalks, mount your camera 
or cameras and pre-focus and you know line it all up exactly how you want it to look and then you just have to wait for the play to happen sometimes it happens you know during a game sometimes it doesn't but you fire it remotely down on the field as you know, I might be shooting a pitcher and then I see a play happen at home plate I'll shoot it with the camera and at the same time fire the above camera the remote camera with the trigger is that uh are you is that like connected to the uh, like, so are you, when you fire the camera you're holding, does that automatically fire the one above, or do you have to just, like simultaneously take a picture and also click? Yeah, double down. So you oh, have wow. to, um, they, some photographers do set it up to where maybe their camera they're holding at home plate will uh, fire the camera that's up above at the same time. I guess I never trusted that system, so I would do it the old school way, and I'd shoot the camera that was in my hand, but in the other hand, I'd fire the other camera with a, a wireless remote, basically. Oh, that's difficult. So, so do you? It's not like a camera on a swivel up top, right? It's like no, it's fixed. It's a fixed right? mounted so, camera. Doesn't move. It's locked down. Safety cables on it in case anything would ever come okay, off so, of. So is that like? Are you like going to be? So let's say you're doing a baseball game. Are you positioning on a play like on one? You know, place on the field you want to be, like say, like home plate or the pitcher's mound, or is it more of a, going to be a wide shot, or is it both? Typically, uh, it's more on one particular spot, and in baseball, I'd say it's more on home plate than anything else because that's where all the yeah, heavy action is going to happen. Those, those are all the classic pictures of the guys like mid swing, you know, from up top. Is that so? That's like that's that's you setting up a camera up top. Yeah, you would put the camera. I had a pretty famous picture I shot for Sports Illustrated during the two thousand eight. Uh, Rays run to the World World Series, and it was during a game against the Red Sox for the ALCS, and a big play happens at home plate, and you know, the, basically there's a slide in at home plate, and the catcher tags him or doesn't tag him out at home plate. But I've you know captured that with that remote camera from above. So when you see that, like you know, the split second before it's happening, are you thinking? Is your first thought catch it with? my hand like the one I'm holding or is it for your first thought catch it with the one above like it, like that split second you know like what what are you thinking um I can't it comes with timing and having to do it a lot and I've been doing this for 40 years so well it, that helps I guess. yeah <laughs> the first time you do it you know you'll probably miss and then you'll learn from that mistake but after you've done it a lot of times and had several failures then you kind of know which one is more important so I pretty much had it down to where I could fire, you know, both at the same time and still get, hopefully get the shot. But it, it also depends on your angle. If you're on the field and in your mind, it all happens so fast, literally in just, you know, split second. Like the guy's running towards home. You think some big play is going to happen. Do you grab it with the camera that's in your hand or do you fire with a remote? My gut is to go with both. But, um, you know, it's just a matter of timing and framing it up right and making sure that, you know, you, you get the shot. And doing it a lot. <laughs> 40 years, that's a lot of pictures right there. Yeah. Do you do you have, a, like, an archive of all your pictures you've you've taken? Or uh, Oh, also, I wanted to know, do you own your photos? How does that, how does that work? Because I know, you know, you, you still have some photos. You have photos that you, you took long, you know, quite some time ago, and then others, you know, I haven't really seen. Well, it's... Uh, the way it worked, when you work on staff, say at a newspaper, uh, which I did for years, they actually own the images because they're paying you a salary, and you uh, you know you can use them or reprint them or anything like that. But they actually own the actual images, the rights to them, the uh, 
the negatives or the files or whatever. You're allowed to use them for whatever you want, pretty much, but they own the rights. Now, at Sports Illustrated, since I was a you know a contract um, photographer, I actually own the rights and own all the actual images. And the way it works was at Sports Illustrated, they get the first uh, rights to use the image because they've hired you to go shoot it. And that's different than if you were just like, you know, a photographer submitting a picture, hoping to get in Sports Illustrated. We were actually, you know, on assignment working as a contract photographer for SI. So, so they have, so they get the the right to use it for the very first time. Correct. And then after that, they're going to have to come repurchase it from you. That's correct. Okay. Now they have it in their library of assets. Like you, I could go online and pull up a picture of, you know, Tom Brady that I shot in 2009. It's in their archives, but every time they reuse a picture then i get paid again basically oh okay shoot that's nice it's it's good (laughs) it's really good good. right there especially if you have a a classic picture Uh, where i know you've worked a ton of uh you know big time games you're just talking about the national championship and super bowls and world series how many do you know do you have an idea of how many let's just say let's just say championship games discluding you know our fifth grade uh basketball team um at the, I don't know what was, I don't even know what the, the league was called, but uh, <laughs> excluding that championship game, what, what, uh, what, how, how many do you think you've shot? Boy, I tell you, I've shot a lot of games, both college, pro, um, NFL, NBA, college basketball. I, I was counting actually before this podcast, just off the top of my head, I've covered ten Super Bowls, I believe three NBA Finals. Uh, NCAA Final Four basketball championships. I think I've done three of those, seven all-star games, three Olympics, including uh, the Winter Olympics in 02 in Salt Lake and the 96 Olympics in Atlanta. Wow. I've done 32 Kentucky Derbies, which is probably my favorite that's, sporting event. That's awesome. The, the Kentucky Derby is the, the, the hats. That's always what gets me is the hats. Like People dress crazy. I, I, I see that. And I'm like, oh, that's cool, whatever. But then I just see the... Just like hats that are like you know three feet in diameter, and you're just like, golly, it's it's always it's always incredible to watch. I've never been. I definitely need to go. It's a it's a it's a bucket list kind of experience. And uh, you know, growing up in Louisville, I went to my first derby. I was in high school. I think me and some buddies bought a five dollar ticket to go in the infield. This is in the '70s, and that happened to be. a horse named uh, Affirmed actually won that year with Steve Cawthon as the jockey, and he went on to take that horse to the Triple Crown and won all three. But, yeah, my first derby I went as a high school kid, and I just was so hooked on I loved it. And then I you know, got into photography and sports photography, and from then on out, I didn't go to every derby since then, but I've been to 32 total, 31 of them working, and then the one as a high school student. But it's the, awesome. the the pageantry of it and the i mean it's it's very um it's a unique sport because you know the race only lasts two minutes yeah. but it's an all day it's an all event, day an right? event yeah. you know and then and and really it's an, a week-long event because there are other things leading up mm-hmm. to the derby but the, when you're standing on the dirt between there's nothing between the horses and you other than you know just dirt basically and you hear those horses go thundering by it makes the hair stand up on your arms so will you have, is that just like, a, let's say you were, ta- like you were talking earlier, you are saying, you know, Brady, you, you have an assignment, shoot Brady. Do you have an assignment for a horse to so like shoot American Pharaoh, 
for example, from a couple, you know, a couple years ago? Well, tip, typically, uh, you might on the second or third leg of the Triple Crown because the Derby, kind of like the Daytona 500, is uh, the first. It's the biggest race of the of the you know of the thoroughbred industry, mm-hmm. but also it's the first big race. So. At that point, when the Derby is going on, no one really knows who the best horse is for that year. Well, because horses aren't really, you know, coming back for a second year, right? Like, thoroughbreds are really only, as far as I understand it, it's kind of like a, you know, one-year kind of thing, right? Yeah, they're three-year-olds. They race in other races, but they're uh, all the horses for the Derby, the Preakness, the Belmont, that is what, you know, most people watch on television. Those are all three-year-olds, and they... Uh, you know they'll race the year before as juveniles in some big stakes races. Mm-hmm. So as two but year it's olds, not, it's not like you know. But their prime is when they're three mm-hmm. years old. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's exciting, man. If you ever get a chance to go to a derby, it's um, it's, uh, it's great. Have you ever? I imagine you know. I, I was going to ask you, you know, if you had any, ever had any like crazy weather conditions at the Kentucky Derby because I was, you know, just this year it was just pouring down rain. You could barely make out the difference between the horses, but you know, I'd actually just like to know just some crazy weather. If you've ever encountered some crazy weather, just in any, you know, any, any shooting. Oh yeah. I've, I've shot in all kinds of crazy weather conditions. I'd say probably six times out of 10 at the Derby, it's raining. So every time, I don't know why it, it, and and typically it'll rain like crazy on Derby Day, and the day after it'll be sunny and gorgeous. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a fate thing. But you know sometimes you get a perfect uh, you know perfect weather, a cooler temperatures. Um, but I've been you know I've been to so many races and sporting events where weather is as big a part of the event you know than the actual event itself. So I, I know when I was a kid, you have I don't know if you still own it, but you have to this day the thickest and biggest jacket i have ever seen like winter coat it, it is unreal i and you were going i think you were shooting uh um i think a philadelphia eagles maybe or or something so somebody up north and you were like oh yeah i'm i'm wearing two of these you know because it was gonna be so it was supposed to you know just absolutely come down yeah, I've had you know I've covered a lot of NFL games in the snow and in the cold. The worst actually is the snow is not too bad. I'd much rather shoot a game in snow because it makes great pictures too. When mm-hmm. you know everything's covered in white and you can't see the players and you know it's just very the design element of it. Uh, the images looking w- with all the snow. The worst is a really cold rain. You know, like thirty eight degrees and raining and you're oh, just yeah. soaked and it gets into your bones and you you can't warm up. But I've shot, uh, well, I shot the O2 Olympics in Salt Lake City. Of course, it's the Winter Olympics, so there's lots of snow and cold. But it's, it's kind of, uh, it's like anything if you're, a, you know, I've uh, done a lot of snow skiing as, as a young man, and they, uh, you go in layers. So you can always layer, you know, take layers off if you get too hot, but it's better to go prepared for the worst and then mm-hmm. kind of peel off layers as it starts to warm up. Do, do you, how, how are you like, you know, fighting against the weather for your, your cameras. Like, is that ever an issue for you where, you know, you're worried about, okay, I don't want the water to get on a camera or a lens or how's that work? Do you, do you have like covers for them while you're shooting? Yeah, there's actually, uh, uh, they're called rain, you know, rain gear for, uh, for the cameras. They're rain covers, basically. They're kind of shaped like the camera itself with the lens and everything attached. And, you know, I'm, I might have a lens on it. It's a $10,000 lens and the camera's like $5,000. So you're holding 
$15,000 worth of gear, just that one camera and one lens. So you don't want it to get wet. You can get a little bit wet, but not too wet. Um, but there's essentially raincoats for the cameras, and then it covers everything but the on the back end where you're looking through it and then the front end where it's, you know, seeing the image. But you use the... Um, they actually have like a little sleeve where you put your hand through it and then it kind of like a like a sleeve on a jacket where it doesn't let the water come pouring in and you can control all the oh, functions. Wow. Oh, that, that's actually really cool. Because I know that I, so, sometimes you'll see people, you know, people, especially when it's raining, and they'll have like a hood, or like an old-timey, you know, look where they'll put the head, their head on the hood of like that over the back right. of the camera. And, uh, you know, I was just, I was just curious whether... Um, that was like a, a worry, you know, that you like, that's something that... Yeah, weather's always a factor, so you have to deal with that and the conditions and, you know, could be super windy and then that affects the way, you know, at an NFL game or a college game, that affects the quarterback, the way they're throwing the ball or if they're, if it's really wet and slippery, that affects the way they're running the ball. It also affects the way you cover a game because you can't run up and, you know, I'm literally running up and down the sidelines of the field to get from one end to the other, especially when the quarters change or a big play interception happens or whatever. So it's a workout. And you're, I mean, I've seen your photography bag. That thing is not small. <laughs> you're, no. <laughs> you're, you're dragging that thing along. You're getting, you're getting some cardio and some serious cardio. You, you, you mentioned earlier, as long as you, you said, like, as long as you keep up with, you know the chain, like the f photography changing. How how would you say photography has changed the biggest, you know, in recent times? Like, how, what, what's what's the industry moving towards now? No question, the biggest change. I mean, photography essentially stayed the same for a hundred years, and or you know, close to that with film, different sizes of film, different types of film, but it's still a camera that you put film in, and you you know, photographed uh, whatever it was you're going to photograph, and then you process the film, and then you make a print of that and then you go from there but it changed more in the last I'd say 15 years than it changed in 100 years from going you know 20 years ago when I for instance I think I was the first photographer or one of the first photographers at the Orlando Sentinel to use a digital camera at that time you know wow. it was a new process the camera was $14,000 it was a one megapixel camera <laughs> Where my phone now, I think, is like 12 or something, or 8, yeah, maybe. I, th I think the, the X, uh, I, yeah, I think the X is, what, 16? Yeah, but 16? that camera, you know, it's $14,000. It didn't work that well because it was new technology. Was, but, it, was, it, that, was it better than film, though? No, it was not better than film. It was just faster because oh, okay. we didn't have to, you know, I would be at a, you know, a college one game. One megapixel, I'm thinking... You know that that can't be that. I mean, I mean, I, I have a you know a camera. Uh, it's twenty four. Right. I, I look and sometimes I'll see you know like one of your pictures or you know a picture from a magazine or something. I'm I'm looking at the twenty four. I'm looking at the one in the magazine. I'm going. That's not the same thing. Yeah. So it's twenty four. You know what does one look like? Well, it looked good enough at the time for what it was. You know the, the way the technology just was evolving constantly. Bigger. You know better cameras, better sensors. So at that time, it was all they had. So, like, that's what you kind of went with. And it was good enough for the newspaper, you know, to get an image immediately into the paper. You didn't have to go back in the in the uh, old locker room of the Tampa Bay Bucks Stadium where we processed the film and made a print and then scanned it. So we went from the early days in the 80s of literally 
carrying an, essentially a dark room to whatever stadium you're going to, whether it was in Tallahassee, Gainesville, Miami, or the Rose Bowl, you'd process the film just like the old way. You'd make a print, and then you would scan the print and send it electronically back to the newspaper. And then we went from that to then removing the print part of it. You would just scan, you'd process the film and scan the negative on a, a computer. You must have been having a whole lot of free time after that. Not, you, you didn't know what to do. After going from having to do all that to snapping a picture and sending it off, you're, you're probably, I mean, what do you got, a couple extra hours now? Not really, because now you have to, uh, in some ways, like when I first started working at Sports Illustrated, in some ways it was faster and easier to shoot with film because when you were done with the game, you packaged, you put all the film in a box, you took it to the airport, you dropped it off, you were done. Now with uh, you know digital, you have to go back in the in the the media workroom, upload all your pictures to your laptop, transmit all the raw files and all the JPEGs, make some edits for their website. So there's all that post work you're doing now. Whereas before, when you were done with the game, you put the film in an envelope, took it to the airport, done. So. Is is that the just the that that you would say is the biggest difference? Definitely the biggest difference from going from film shooting to digital shooting, and now the cameras are you know they're a little bit smaller, a little bit lighter, just as expensive. Um, well, now you put them on drones. <laughs> well, we we put it not for sporting events. You don't, but for no, other type assignments, we shoot that down. <laughs> yeah, go up there and get it with a net or something. But well, I know you work for. Uh, Let's just say some unnamed hotel chains. We'll go there because uh, I don't want to get popped by the NCAA. But um, uh, you work for some hotel hotel chains, and uh, on your your Instagram, actually, let's plug your Instagram right now because you have some great photos. What's your Instagram? Instagram is at Gary Bogdan. Okay, at Gary Bogdan. If you want to see some great stuff, some interesting stuff, he's always traveling. He's always in a different place. You gotta go check out Instagram, but you're always uh, working for you know different hotel chains or different uh, you know things. And I you, you got this these big drones. And I, and for you know people that haven't seen it before or don't really know what I'm talking about, I'm not talking about like a small drone here. I'm talking about uh, what is it? It has four. It's got quad quadcopter. Okay, right. it is big and it's like it can carry some weight. So do, do, do you have to, is there training for that or are you just buying, I mean how, it has to be expensive. It has to be expensive if it's carrying it. If it's carrying $15,000 worth of equipment, how much does the drone cost? It's all expensive uh, is the is probably the right answer. But um, yeah, I actually am an FAA licensed uh, drone pilot and uh, so are all the people that fly with me. For the really big shoots, um, I actually have um, um and a, you know, a drone pilot, and I he he flies the ship, and I'm there with him, uh, directing it basically. Is that and so? That's his like primary job. That's his only job. Fly that okay. ship, and I'm there on the other, you know, monitor, telling him which way to go, higher, lower, slower, faster, through something, over something, so, that sort so, of thing. So, so five years ago, his job was not a career. <laughs> yeah, may, yeah, maybe five years ago, a little bit longer, maybe. Yeah, it, it's the technology, and now that technology is, you know, with. With drones and cameras and everything, is everything is getting uh, smaller. You know, you can you can now fly a smaller drone through different spaces you never been able been able to do before. You know, through the arch of a you know a rock formation or whatever. You know, we've flown them in hotel lobbies, down beaches, above pools, down water slides, all kinds of stuff. That's very cool. When you when you 
first started doing it, when you first started working with, you know, the drone, because, you know, I can go out and buy a pretty nice drone for a grand, just, you know, get some decent footage. Like, but, I mean, you're putting your cameras on these things, right? You're not, they don't have a built-in camera. You're Actually, now they do have a proprietary camera. We use the DJI drones. I don't know if I can say that, but. Uh, as, as long as I'm not endorsing it, yeah. it's fine. You know? uh, there's, there's plenty of them out there. Which I'm not. No one think I'm endorsing that. Okay, get out of your minds. Anyway, continue. We uh, so we use uh, those drones a lot, and they have proprietary cameras that are built into the drone. We do have other quadcopters that we can put bigger cameras on. Just depends on the you know the project and the budget and all those sorts of things. But everyone on my team is all FAA licensed, and you got to go through a process to get that and insured with liability insurance yeah. and all kinds of stuff yeah you don't want a drone flying off and hitting a 12 year old in the pool in the head you know yeah no we don't we don't want that <laughs> is one of the hardest because i remember when i was a, a kid i mean you lived down the street from me so when i was a kid uh, you'd always i mean you were traveling like crazy is that is that one of the good parts of the job or the bad parts you know just because i mean i mean you'll go for I mean, just the other day you were at uh, in uh, you know the Bahamas working at a um, prominent uh, hotel you know place, and you're gone for what ten days, eleven, thirteen, twelve, you know. I'm usually gone for three or four days to a, maybe a week at a clip now with the kind of work I'm doing now, but it's kind of a double-edged sword. You get kind of used to traveling just the way somebody would get used to commuting to work on I four or whatever, but you have it down to a real system like. You know, I have TSA pre-check, and I know what time and what flights are the best ones to get in and out of a place. And you don't make any kind of rookie mistakes on, you know, going to the wrong airport or flying out, you know, flying in and out of or anywhere in Florida in the summer or Atlanta in the afternoons is always problematic because of thunderstorms. So you typically would... I try to get the first flights out to wherever I'm going and then the last flight back in, but... It just depends on what you know you're comfortable with and what you're used to. But it's a double-edged sword. Traveling, it's hard being away from your family, and and um, but then you when you're not working on a project, then you're home and you can do all the sort of things that people that had a nine-to-five job wouldn't be able to do. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I wanted to I wanted to you know ask you what are some of what are some of your craziest stories? You gotta have after forty years. You have to have some crazy sports stories of you working with some guys. You know that just maybe they're having a bad day and something something happened. There's got to be a few. Oh, I've got a few. Okay, so, well, I I like to hear them. <laughs> so, like I said, I went to Indiana University. I'm a big IU fan and a big Florida State fan. But uh, I actually lived in Tallahassee when I was in the eighth grade, so that's probably where the seed was planted for me liking Florida State. That was in the 70s. But, you know, being a basketball fan growing up in Kentucky and Indiana, um, you know, I went to IU. I was there in the Bob Knight years, and I was at the game. Real against... quick, real quick, just in, in, a, in a, as few words as possible, how was that? What, what kind of experience was that? I'd say the best word to describe that was – all of those games, or particularly with Coach Knight, intense. He's an intense individual. He's a perfectionist. People would generally fall on one side of the fence or the other with Coach Knight, either love him or hate him. Um, to us, being students there, and especially you know photo uh, students there on the campus, it was like you'd go into a restaurant or a little diner or something. If Coach Knight was there, it would kind of like Darth Vader walked in. You know, <laughs> like the whole place would get kind of quiet, and we'd see him walk in. So. 
he was he was that kind of personality. You were almost afraid to look him in the eye, kind of thing. He was intimidating too. Uh-huh. But I was at the game when IU was playing Purdue when he threw the infamous chair wow, across the court. Not many people can say that. That's pretty. That's awesome. And I actually seen Coach Knight. You know, I'm sure he was mad, and that was just like a heat of the moment kind of thing. But I'd seen you know, I'd seen much worse than that kind of thing <laughs> happening. But it you know it was one everybody always remembers and talks about mm-hmm. and writes about and it's the highlights on the film but i've been fortunate actually i've seen good and bad on the sports field or floor um you know i i covered that game for the student publications i was working in miami in 84 when uh doug flutie threw his miracle pass against uh, the miami hurricanes and and won that game there in the old orange bowl um i, I was covering daytona 500 when earnhardt crashed and that uh, tragedy happened there with Dale Earnhardt getting killed in that crash. Oh, wow. Um, I was at Elway's first uh, Super Bowl win in Miami, a guy that, unlike Dan Marino, who was a great quarterback, never won a Super Bowl, but I was, you know, Elway's first win. And they were in the same class together, Elway. Um, you know, they were drafted, I believe, if I remember right, around the same year. But I was at that Super Bowl covering that game. My first Super Bowl actually was in Miami, and it was Joe Montana and Jerry Rice. Wow. With the 49ers playing against the uh, Cincinnati Bengals and uh, the Icky Shuffle, I remember that was like a little dance. But that's incredible. That's awesome. Uh, have you ever had? Is it mostly uh, like sporting events, or do you ever shoot like on like a set with a with a like a sports you know personality or just a personality or someone that you know a magazine wants to get a picture for? So actually, I've done both. I've done uh, a lot more now. What I'm doing now, so I do advertising work, um, and I might be on a set. Last week, I was on a set. We were filming. Uh, a crew was filming a commercial with a Olympic, actually a Paralympic athlete that's um, shooting for the uh, 2020 Games in uh, Japan, and they the team was filming her for a video project about her you know story and I was filming or I was shooting stills on the set at the same time but um yeah so I've, I've done a little bit of both and uh you know I've, I've been fortunate to photograph so many athletes at the heights of their careers I mean I've right now go get come on just list a couple just oh, knock you, them out you name it MJ Shaq uh, Shaq and Penny Joe Montana um Tiger Woods, Jack Nicklaus, Arnold Palmer, uh, Kobe. I once had, this was a funny story, that reminds me. I was doing a job for Nike out in Las Vegas, and the whole job was spend a day with Kobe. He was going around to some different schools and, you know, giving some lessons or something like some of the high school kids. One of those kind of feel-good stories. And <laughs> afterwards, uh, we were in Las Vegas, and Kobe's agent uh, and the Nike rep, asked me to want to know if I want to go get lunch with him, basically. So we went to the In-N-Out Burger with Kobe Bryant. I'm sitting in the In-N-Out Burger with Kobe having, you know, having lunch. And it was funny to see the look on people's faces when they come into the In-N-Out Burger and they place their order and they look over and you could see it on their face. They're thinking, is that Kobe Bryant? Yeah, they're trying to put it together. Yeah. He's not He's not like a guy with like, like Shaq. When Shaq walks into a place, you go, oh, that's Shaq. Oh, yeah. You know, but like sometimes you'll get... You know, like a six six. It comes about six six. So it's like, you know, people, and, and especially people that don't, you know, watch a lot of sports or don't keep up with a lot of. Uh, well, I don't know. What was that? Your washing machine or something? Coffee maker. Coffee maker. All right. Well, you know what? 
this is what's well with Wild Wilkes. We're just gonna keep it in because this is organic. That's <laughs> that's what we that's what we came up with last last podcast. That's how but Wyatt rolls. That's how I roll. We keep it organic here at uh, this podcast, run by one person. Uh, I don't have a team, but <laughs> but at, at the at this organization, that's how we roll. But you know, with a guy like Kobe, you just you, you might, especially with people you know that don't watch a lot of sports, don't keep up with it on Twitter. They'll they'll sit there, and then you can just see them trying to figure it out, put it together in their head. You know, it's always funny to me, especially you know uh, with Terrence. You know, Terrence was a prominent player, and we'd you know go go grab dinner somewhere, and people would sit there, and they don't realize they're doing it. They'll sit there and stare for like ten minutes, and they'll just sit there and just look and just be like. Is that who I think it is? And then, they, and then once they figure out that it's that person, they can't. Then they can't figure out whether they should say something or not. <laughs> like whether go up and say hi or go up and ask for a picture. Is that okay? Is this? You know, it's it's just very, it's it's funny to me. Recently, you you uh, actually not recently, but you photographed. I think uh, Dad was telling me that you photographed Arnold Palmer, and they were actually just using your picture uh, like years later. Yeah, they. Uh, I'd photographed. Arnie many times because he lived here in Orlando in the in the winter season. Of course, he had his tournament down at Bay Hill, but um, it was a you know I, I was a golfer growing up as a kid. Uh, I played since I was probably seven years old. So Arnie, I was always a big fan of Arnie and uh, Jack Nicholas as well. But to uh, you know, and I'd photographed him in tournaments tournaments before. But it's a different uh, kind of experience when you have you get one on one with whatever the particular athlete is. And it could be good or it could be bad. You could get a sense of their personality. They're great or they're not so great. And I've had a few of both. But I'd say for the most part, they've all been great. And Arnie was uh, he was a true gentleman on the course and off the course. And, uh, you know, just I was doing an ad campaign and photographing Arnie at his course and in his uh, house and tinkering with clubs in his garage and signing autographs in his office, which he did a lot of, by the way. And did a lot for the community with the hospitals and stuff. Mm-hmm. But one of the coolest experiences was uh, after we were done, we were grabbing lunch. And uh, he asked me, you know, do you want something to eat? And I'm like, sure. And, you know, I'm not going to turn down Arnold Palmer, you know. Yeah, no, so That's not something you do. <laughs> so I actually, uh, you know, I, I didn't know what to order, but I thought, well, I'm going to, you know. I'm going to order what he orders. So he got a hot dog and an Arnold Palmer. <laughs> so I got the same. So did he, did, Is that how he ordered it? Did he say an Arnold Palmer? He didn't say anything. He just walked up. They knew what to give him. And oh, then once I saw what he got, I ordered the same thing. That's great. That's awesome. But, it, yeah, I, I wondered, actually, when he got up there, wonder what he's going to order to drink. Would he actually say, I'll have an Arnold Palmer? But they knew what to give him. And, of course, that's his famous drink, the lemonade tea mix. And, and uh but to actually be sitting there, it was like a surreal experience to be like drinking an Arnold Palmer with Arnold Palmer with, on his golf course. It was literally the man. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty cool. But, you know, I, I got lucky and it was just a timing thing and just kind of blessed career. And, you know, I got to photograph so many people, players that you all have heard of in their prime, you know, Larry Bird and Magic, Brady and Joe Montana, Jeter and Big Poppy. Um, Johnny Damon in high school. He was he's from Orlando. Wow. Went to you know Dr. Phillips High School, and he was one of those kind of players. There aren't many like this, but if you've been around a lot of high school players and you know sports and stuff, you see them play, and they're at a different level in high school than mm-hmm. everyone else on the field. Yeah. And you know when you look at them playing, and you think if everything goes right, you know injury wise, career wise, moves, college, whatever. They're going to be a special player in the pros. 
that was the way Johnny Damon was. Same way with Vince Carter in high school. He just had yeah, that he, he had, had that, that mojo. Yeah, you know, it's it. a special special mm-hmm. gift. Some have it, some don't. I I photographed Shaq a lot back. You know, when he played for LSU, and then when he was drafted by the Magic. He's probably one of my definitely top five, if not top two or three players I've ever worked around or photographed. Him and you know him well, and Penny Ball. I remember you you just saying just how great of a guy he was, just how easy going, easy to work with. He is. He's kind of a big, and he still is today. You can tell on television. He's a big cut up. You know, mm-hmm. he likes to goof around, do funny stuff, keep the media on their toes, and you know, do funny things. And he just he was a lot of fun to work with. Whereas. Uh, you know, I photographed Tiger a lot, both playing and, you know, offset. Uh, unbelievable talent. Pretty serious. Same way MJ, very serious. Yeah, I was uh, going to say, I imagine he was probably pretty intense. Yeah, they're just, all business. Yeah, all the time. Yeah, just I've been around uh, Michael, you know, a decent amount just with, especially when I was younger because Dad works his camp and everything. And just even, he's just, he's so competitive that he, it's like he never learned how to turn it off. Yeah, you that's know. exactly. He had – there weren't many players that I was ever around or saw, you know, witnessed. You know, obviously LeBron James is a great player. I'd, he had that special killer instinct. He could not turn it off. Like, he would beat you – if he couldn't beat you physically in a game, like if you were a better shooter or a better rebounder or better – he would find out what your weakness is and he would exploit that weakness yeah. to the maximum. I, like, I – like I'm a extremely competitive person. My, our family doesn't play games anymore. Like we don't play board games. Like no nothing like that because we always <laughs> just get in fights. Like it, I I used to have an honest to god problem because I would just I would just get so angry, you know. Uh, but I learned how to deal with it. But like to this day, I'll be walking next to someone and I'll want to walk faster than them because I feel like they're beating me, even in a competition that it's not a competition and they don't know they're playing. But I'll try to walk faster. Michael's like that with everything a hundred percent of the time he's awake right in fact he's probably dreamed he probably dream while he's sleeping he probably dreams about beating people right you know i that that was always you know one thing that i saw in tiger as well yeah you could see it in their you can see it in their eyes and the way they you know everyone has a bad game you know whether you're playing golf or playing basketball or whatever but michael and tiger the same way they know how to win at all costs you know they know like you might be better than them tonight, but if it's a six-game series or a seven-game series, they're going to beat you tomorrow night. Or they're going to exploit whatever your weakness is or whatever your flaw is. I used to love, like, covering uh, NBA games just for to hear because I'm sitting on the floor. You know, there's so no one closer. The, yeah, hear I hear all the saying. trash talking, and the trash talking was one of my favorite things to oh, hear. Yeah. Like, Reggie Miller was brutal on the, oh, yeah, on the court. Oh, yeah. So was Larry Bird. Larry Bird is often – Times regarded as the best trash talker of all time. Yeah, he would. Uh, his was all psychological. Like he wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, cursing at anyone or saying stuff about their mom or anything yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. Or he would get psychological with people and get in their heads. And I remember hearing him one time say something like, uh, "You know, there was a few seconds left before the game was over. He's, you know, he's obviously getting the ball, and whoever was guarding him. I remember hearing him say to whoever. I don't remember who the game was against, but." Whoever was guarding him, he told the guy, "Like, this is all you've got. You're guarding me because I'm gonna, I'm gonna step away from this and shoot and knock down the game winner right here." And of course, that's what he did. So, but he yeah. was, he he was notorious trash talker. Reggie Miller was too. He was he was killer. Kobe yeah. a little bit as well. Yeah, Kobe Kobe pick his spots. 
you know, I, I don't think he was talking the whole game, but if he, I feel like if he had it going, he's going to be running his mouth. And then you got, you know, I think guys like Michael, Larry, uh, a couple other, you know, guys in the NBA history, they, they were just the whole game. It didn't matter if they had two points, 50, they were just running their mouth the whole game. And they're just like, you know, especially like with Michael, he'll, he'll be running his mouth and rarely did. I don't think ever he had two points, okay? But like, let's say he's not having, you know, the greatest game ever. He'll be running his mouth so that next time when you see him, like, you know, 20 games from now, you're, you're mad that he was talking crap the last game. Right. And now he's in your head mentally. You know, it's yeah. just like stuff like that. It's just... Well, that was their goal. To get it. Once yeah. they get in your head, you're done. You're, you're toast. Yeah, yeah, you're not... You you will not beat them. And that's their goal, to get in your head. So if you're able to tune that out and play your game... Kobe, I think, was the closest player to Michael that had that kind of killer competitive instinct. You know, I think LeBron is probably a better physical player than Kobe was, but Kobe... He would beat you like Michael would. You know, he would learn your weakness, and he would be maybe tonight was the night he was going to be defense and not score as much. That's what people don't realize about Michael. He has the most all defensive first teams of all time. Nine. I mean, that's that's while with ten scoring championships. You know, you know, he's probably mad he didn't get ten. You know, he. um, I covered a lot of Michael's games playing and. All-Star games as well. I remember that. I can't remember where it was, but I remember that All-Star game where it was Kobe's first All-Star game, and Michael was there. Of course, he's the veteran. He's Michael Jordan. And Kobe had that kind of arrogance about him, you know, that, you know, probably was a little bit uh, too much that Michael thought, you know, well, who's this young yeah. kid think he is? But obviously it proved proved well for Kobe. But the one thing about Michael that a lot of people didn't realize, and, you know, you see all the still pictures and the videos of him winning dunk championships and flying through the air and palming the ball. He was a big guy, obviously. I forget how tall he was. 6'6", 6'5", 6'6". But he had huge hands. Oh, yeah, he is. And he his is hands, hands could, like, palm, like, you know, my yeah. head. You know, like, yeah. he, and to him, I looked at it one time and I realized, like, to him holding a basketball would be like me holding a softball mm-hmm. you know that's why he could take it and float through the air and move it hand to hand behind his legs under the you know whatever one of the greatest plays he ever he ever had uh and we're, we're running out of time here but real quick one of the greatest plays he ever had was one of, the, one of the subtle things i cannot i can't remember what i've been thinking about it for like two minutes trying to remember what team it was against but it was when he faked out the the cameraman when he he was at like probably the like mid post or like maybe elbow and he fakes it like he's gonna throw it up top and even the cameraman like both the defenders that were doubling him they start running over the cameraman shifts all the way over and then comes back to him and he still got the ball and it was just <laughs> just that little thing was it was one of my favorite that he did um so usually i'll ask a couple questions or a question at the at the end you know just uh you know you know, just to something something random, but just you know something that induces a little bit of thought. Uh, what do you what what sport do you think takes the most skill? Not the hardest, but the most skill. And you could you can say I I have no idea. Okay, that's totally fair because I don't think there there's one answer. But every usually people have an opinion. I think pro, uh, you mean to shoot the sport, like or or you mean to play the sport. Okay, how about we we'll do both? So what's the, what's the one that takes the most skill to shoot, and what's the one that takes the most skill to play? Because you've been around a whole lot of different sports. Yeah, so I've shot pretty much every major sporting event except Wimbledon. Um, the hardest probably for me, and it might be because I didn't shoot that much of it, but it's just a different sport. 
uh, is hockey. So I've shot, you know, a couple of Stanley Cups and, you know, regular season games. Hockey is very difficult to follow because I didn't know the sport that well. Um, but it's just, a you know, a tricky sport to shoot because they're all in these big uniforms and helmets and everything. So it's hard to get a real great picture out of hockey to, you know, to get capture the moment, the timing, the puck, everything. The puck's super small. It's hard to find. Uh, so hockey was probably the hardest sport for me to shoot. Um, probably maybe because I grew up with it so much and was around it a lot. Um, basketball was probably the easiest for me to shoot, both you know high school, mm-hmm. college, and pro. Um, I just it was very natural for me to you know I, I kind of know you know I know the plays I know you know, I don't know all the plays but I I, I know the players mm-hmm. I know what their moves you are. You understand the game a little yeah. better. Yeah. Yeah, and if you so. understand the game, that's the key to getting great pictures. Mm-hmm. So if you understand the game and you kind of can anticipate what's going to happen, then you're going to be pointing the camera at the right time, the right spot, that sort of thing. And then what's, what sport do you think takes the most skill to play? You don't have to explain it, just, just say I think uh, baseball, hitting a fastball. You know what? I, I might be leaning towards, towards that as well. Just because base, real, really, really quick, I think baseball is one of those things that truly is you don't use it, you lose it. And it's like, it's one of the, like, you know, you, you quit playing basketball for a little while, you come back, you can get back into it pretty quick. Baseball, you see guys stop for six months, they come back, they can never play again. That's why they you drop know? them to the minors. There you yeah. go. But, I mean, uh, I've seen, uh, you know, all the bigs play, and it, it's so, that ball, when you're standing down there on the field, and it's, it's, it's going so fast, yeah. man. I don't see how they hit any any balls, yeah. much less a home run. Yeah, it's, it's nuts. But... We're, we are just about out of time, trying to keep it under an hour here. We could probably talk for six, but uh, I think people will probably get bored of us eventually. Um, thank you for coming on the podcast. I had a great time. Thanks, Wyatt. I always said I had a great face for radio, so this is my opportunity. <laughs> this, is, uh, this is your debut for radio. Well, this has been podcast number five of What's What with Wyatt Wilkes. Thank you to all the listeners. Thank you guys for being patient. It's been a while. Uh, I really wanted to prepare for this one. I've been, uh, you know, kind of getting the itinerary together for quite some time now. And uh, uh, Gary's been out of town, and we've just been trying to work it out. And I knew I wanted to do this one. And just you guys have been really supportive and, you know, just sending a lot of different questions that I can ask and really helping me out. And I just wanted to give a big shout out to everybody that's listening and uh, just say uh, have a good day, everybody. Thank you and keep on listening, guys.